Murray's Adirondack Tales by W. H. H. Murray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Keith Salas. Murray's Adirondack Tales, Part 1, The Mystery of the Woods. Chapter 1. It was evening. The last suggestion of daylight had faded out of the atmosphere, and the densest gloom enveloped the mountainsides and lay as with a pressure on the lake. The darkness was not such as clouds make. It was not the darkness of a veiled sky, of an obscured firmament, but of air possessed through and through and thick with blackness. A hot night it was, and utterly calm. Not a movement in the air, not a movement on the water, not a sound stirred an aerial wave overhead, even the loons floated through the gloom without a cry. The birds of night, perched among the pines, sent forth neither challenge nor call. Amid the gloom a boat was moving, moving leisurely on as if he who guided its motion, either by reason of weariness or indolence of mood, was pleased with easy progress. It was so dark that the old trapper, for it was he who sat in the stern of the boat, plying with easy stroke his favorite paddle, could not by any effort of sight catch even the outline of the shores or discern the edges of the islands past which he steered. It was from instinct rather than vision that the old man threaded his way around the points that projected into the lake and the angles of the islands that lay athwart his course. He was on his return from a trip of several days' duration which he had made to the south, and being within a few miles of his cabin felt no impulse to hasten. Indeed, the very warmth of the night the intense darkness, and the perfectly level condition of the water made the leisurely movement more enjoyable. The still air was full of odors which the balsams and cedars along the lake shore yielded forth, and the warm atmosphere most agreeable to the senses. He had reached the southern extremity of the last island which lay athwart his course, and was within a few miles of the bay at the head of which his cabin stood. Directing the movement of his boat a little farther out into the lake, he passed along within a few rods of the silent shore. Thus moving easily forward, he came to the northern point of the island, and as he passed around the extreme projection, he suddenly reversed his paddle and brought his boat to a stop. The reason of this action was evident. On the main shore, within a short half-mile of where he sat, a campfire was burning, the bright flame of which lighted the dark branches of the pines above it, the bright stretch of beach in front, and sent its lanes of light sharply out into the gloom that hung above the motionless surface of the lake. For a moment the old trapper sat in his boat looking at the fire and the objects grouped around it, evidently men, although at the distance he could not make out clearly their personal appearance. He had only left the lake himself two days before, and when he had left it there was no sign of any such party's arrival, no forerunner, as is often the case when a large party make preparation for encampment. It certainly is a little queer that so big a party should have come in without any notice of their coming, muttered the old trapper to himself. Yes, it certainly is a little queer, for I axed Wild Bill himself, and he had just come through the Regis waters, if there was anybody coming in. And he said, and I don't see why the man, if he be a half-vagabond, should lie in such a matter, he said there wasn't a sign of a party's coming in from the Canada line to the Raquette. 
No, I don't believe the bill would lie without a motive. For that's again nature, as I conceit, and certain it is that his eye is quicker on the trail than a good many that don't love the bottle as much as Bill does. And yet, day afore yesterday, Bill told me that there wasn't a sign of a party between the Canada line and the raquette, where the crick without a stone enters it. And still there be a fire, and there be men round it, half a dozen, more or less, and the big shanty is full of stuff, and there be two small tents, and there be a big un atween the other tents and the shanty. Lord, I certainly hope they have brought in the justice of the peace with them and a Moravian missioner, so that they can start their settlement in regular city fashion. I certainly never expected to see a dozen men camping at one point on the lake, where the pups and me have lived half as many years and never see their numbers doubled. I guess I'll paddle in and say a cheerful word to them and let them know they're a sort of welcome, leastwise as much as they can reasonably expect to be by a man who loves the silence of the woods and wishes they weren't within fifty mile of him. <laughs> yes, yes, said the old man to himself as he paddled on. I can see just how their axes will sound tomorrow morning for the city folks use their axes without any judgment. Now the pups and me won't have much peace for certain, for atween their axes and their pieces they'll disturb the peace of nature and make this lake more like a Dutch settlement than a pleasant spot for a man of my years and gifts to live on. Oh, the massy. Just see that chap throw on the wood, as if it didn't take the Lord a hundred year to grow them sticks. And here the air is hot enough to smother you, and I've certainly heard the mutter of thunder west of the mountain twice already since I turned the island's point. And if the Lord don't talk to him afore morning in a way that'll make him shake, it'll be because he's got careless himself, teaching the wasteful ways of them that he permits to use the things that he has growed. As the trapper had said, one of the six men that sat round the fire had risen, and after throwing on several armfuls of pine logs quarterings from a huge trunk that lay stretched within twenty feet of the blaze, had rejoined the group, which, on rising, he had left. The old trapper, in the meantime, was paddling with rather rapid motion in, and by the time that the flames had reached that degree of brightness to reveal minutely the surroundings, the earnestness of his stroke had brought him within twenty rods of the beach, it was not in accordance with the habits of the man to run a boat uncarelessly upon a party unknown to him, and while for the last twenty rods of his progress he had continued to ply his paddle with regulated motions, his eyes had been scanning with intent earnestness every object in and about the camp that he was so rapidly nearing. Nor had his mind been less active than his eye. By the time that he had reached the distance we have mentioned, Enough of the camp and its occupants had come within his observation to reveal to him the fact that it was no ordinary party of sportsmen or pleasure-seekers that composed it, and with this conclusion the old trapper had again brought his boat to a stop, and with the trained sight of an experienced scout, sharpened to say the least by intent curiosity, he was studying its every detail, and this is what the old trapper saw. A level stretch of water edging itself against the bright beach whose soft yellow sand swept their easy ascent up some forty feet, till they came to the roots of the great pines that grew upon the mossy border of the upland. Amid the pines a cleared opening, a dozen rods perhaps in diameter, on the beach were boats, 
above a campfire of generous size, as we have described. On the water side, two men were sitting on a log with their backs to the lake. Beyond the fire, a shanty made of bark with twenty feet front. In the shanty, three men were playing cards, playing as men play when under great excitement, perhaps the excitement of liquor, for they were noisy and oaths were not infrequent. Back and a little to the right of the shanty was a large tent whose canvas door, if door it had, was closely tied. The flame of the fire brought it into bright relief. In the rear of the tent were two smaller tents, one pitched a little to the right, the other a little to the left of it. In front of the large tent, half hidden in shadow, the old trapper's quick eye detected the form of a man reclining, perhaps asleep. A little to the left of the campfire, resting on logs with one end against the roots of a tree, was a small barrel, and on it a tin cup. While the old trapper was noting the scene in front of him, one of the players left the game, and going to the cask, filled the tin cup from its contents and drank it, then returned, and with a dreadful oath, reseated himself at the game. The men were all heavily bearded and as heavily armed, for in the belt of each was a knife, and suspended from the roof of the shanty, the old trapper's eye caught the dull gleam of rifle barrels and burnished pistol stocks. For ten full minutes, perhaps, the old trapper sat studying the scene in front of him, and it must be confessed that the more he noted the party, the more he was surprised at their appearance. He even moved his boat to different points that he might more perfectly study the encampment from different angles of vision. I've seen a good many queer camps, said the old man to himself. Yes, I've seen a good many queer camps, for I have seen them who call themselves sportsmen come in from the settlements to the woods to riot and to shame the beasts with their drinking, and that barrel there certainly points in that direction. I run across a camp of gamblers once on the Grass River, and they certainly was nigh the devil's own children as the Lord can permit on the earth if he takes any notice of right and wrong and what is decent and sober-like. Up in the fur country I've seen the off-scouring of the earth, and I certainly did my part to help the Lord out in his managing of the scamps. But here be a party that I can't understand, no. The signs isn't plain about their camp yonder. It may be that they are only city chaps that have come into the woods to carouse, and their knives and their pistols be for show, and they're cured playing only in sport. Although, by the way they're talking, I should certainly judge they was getting considerably earnest. But, and the old man started his boat straight toward the beach, I'll go in and speak em fair, whoever they may be, and give em a kind of cheerful welcome. Yes, I'll act as a man should act toward his fellow beings in the woods, and perhaps they'll take a little judicious advice from a man who has lived twice their number of years and has earned the right to give counsel to them to be younger. Yes, I'll go in and see who they be anyway. So saying, the old trapper started for the beach. It may have been merely the result of long habit, it may have been the result of intention born from the feeling of uncertainty touching the character of the camp into which he was going but from whatever cause the result may have proceeded, he could not have ambushed a camp of enemies with greater skill or laid his light boat up more noiselessly against the soft sands of the beach. Indeed, he did not allow it to touch the sands at all, but before the water shallowed to that extent which forbade progress, he lifted himself from his seat 
with the steady poise and balance of a perfect boatman, and with his rifle in his left hand, and with the finger of his right resting upon the rim of his boat, he stepped noiselessly into the water, and with the easiest of motion lifted the bow of the boat gently up and laid it noiselessly upon the soft beach. Standing within fifty feet of the fire, he paused a moment and steadily looked the camp over. Had it not been for the position of those that occupied it, he could not have been unobserved, for the fire brought his stalwart form into full view. But those who were within the shanty were too much interested in their exciting game to notice anyone beyond their circle. The two men sitting by the fire were so seated that their backs were directly toward the trapper, while the huge form that lay stretched in front of the large white tent suggested that it belonged to one who was fast asleep. For a moment the trapper thus stood, and then his moccasined feet began to move slowly and noiselessly up the sand. Perhaps it was only habit quickened by the memory of some more perilous venture in the years past. Perhaps it was the suggestion of some lurking humor that made him move as carefully upon the men as if they were his foes, and his own safety lay in getting them with an easy sweep of his rifle stock. No matter from what cause, his approach was so noiseless that far more trained ears than those in that camp would have been unable to catch the light step as it moved up the yielding sand and trod softly forward over pine-tasseled ground. He approached within a yard of the two men sitting with their backs toward him on the log, when again he paused, and standing as erect as a statue and as motionless, scanned the unusual scene. His countenance showed that he was not entirely satisfied with the character of the company into whose midst he had stolen, for in the expression of his face a look of amusement was blended with intense curiosity, while the least shade of suspicion looked out of his eyes and played like a veritable shadow over his features. It was while he was thus standing in full light of the rising flame, and within an arm's length of the two men sitting on the log unconscious of his presence, the eyes of one of the three men who were gambling in the shanty, while he was in the very act of lifting with a flourish his last card into the air to play it, chanced as he raised his head to fall directly upon him. The shock of surprise was so tremendous that, for a moment, animation seemed suspended, for his arm remained lifted in the air at that point he had raised it. His mouth fairly opened and his eyes stood fixed in astonishment, while the oath he was uttering remained half unspoken. His excitement with electric swiftness communicated itself to his two companions. They wrenched themselves round on their stools and, with a look of terror on their swarthy faces, stared as fixedly as had their companion at the figure before them. It was at this moment, and utterly unconscious of his companion's excitement in the presence of the man who had stood within arm's reach of him, that one of the men on the log rose to his feet and turned abruptly around, yawning as he turned, toward the lake. Few men could have borne the shock in silence, at least his nerves were unable to bear up against the surprise, for as his eyes met the eyes of the trapper, out of his mouth came a yell as only can be given in extreme terror, while in his effort to jump aside he actually tumbled over his companion and both rolled upon the ground but certainly there was nothing at which to be frightened in the look of the trapper's face, for instead of being the countenance of one bent on deadly work, it was a countenance of one lightened with humor even unto laughter. "'I ask your pardon,' said the trapper, speaking to the two men who had been sitting on the log and who were picking themselves up from the earth. "'I ask your pardon for coming on you sudden-like, but 
What right had you? exclaimed the man who had tumbled over his companion. What right had you, damn you, to come stealing up like a sneak on a man sitting by his own fire in that way? Lord oh, mercy, friend, you needn't be so earnest about the matter. There's no great damage done, anyway, as I can see. You certainly did make a pretty lively jump, but you be young yet, and a jump more or less don't hurt a man, as I can see. And as for stealing up on you, I did ambush you a little, that's a fact, but it's only because it sort of comes natural to one whose moccasins learnt the ways of a trail in the old wars to step sort of easy-like. But it may be that I should have hailed you and come more noisy, and if my coming has disturbed you any, I'm sorry for it, and ask your pardon. Although I meant no evil. No, I certainly meant no evil. By this time the three men who had been gambling in the shanty had joined the two by the fire, and they were now standing in a group fronting him, staring with lowering faces at the intruder. What right have you to come into this camp anyway without invitation? said one of the men determinately. Right to come into a camp rejoined the trapper. Who hasn't the right to come into a camp in peacetime? And this is certainly in peacetime. As for an invitation, as you call it, you must be a stranger to the woods not to know that a campfire itself is an invite for any man that passes to come in and warm himself if he be cold, or cook his venison if he be hungry, and have a cheerful word with him that built it. How do you know that you are wanted here? retorted the one who had constituted himself spokesman of the party. "'I don't understand you,' said the trapper. "'I asked you a plain question,' said the man, and his tones came out clean-cut as a knife. "'I asked you a plain question. If you can't understand it, perhaps we'll find a way to increase your wits.' And he tapped the handle of his knife with a finger significantly while the others laughed insultingly. "'Yes, yes, I understand you now.' said the trapper, and his eyes darkened their shade by a trifle. I understand you now, young man, but you needn't be so sassy about it. I played the little game you hinted at afore you was born, and you needn't tap the handle of your knife as if you was talking to a lad from the settlements, or a redskin afore his face has knowed the color of the paint. But I suppose that motion of your finger was only a little bit of pleasantry on your part, young man. Look here, retorted the other. We ain't boys who make up this crowd. There's no one here that hasn't handled the knife, and handled it when it was red blade and handle both. And now, as I can see you're a man accustomed to plain talk, I might as well say that we are here on our own business, and this is our camp, and you are not wanted here. And the sooner you clear out, the better it'll be for you. Do you understand that? Certain, certain, answered the trapper. You've got a chipper tongue atween your teeth, young man, and you rather love to move it, as I conceit. Yes, this is your camp, as you say, and a little uncertain kind of camp it is, too. For atween your canoes that I see was made in the fur country, and your gambling, and your drinking, and your sassy tongue, and that big tent there that's big enough for a general and hasn't any door unless it opens on the backside, which isn't just the way that folks who come up here for sightseeing pitch their tents, and certain other signs I noted as I stood looking at you afore you seed me, your camp is the most uncertain one I've ever seed. 
And if it ain't again your wishes, I would like to ask what sort of camp you've got here, and what game do you mean to strike? You'll get none of your questions answered by me, replied the man, and the sooner the talking is ended the better. I've told you that this was our camp, and you are not wanted in it. And now, let me ask, do you propose to leave it? Certain, said the trapper. If you'd been civil in your speech and friendly in your acts, I might have brought a strip of venison here by your fire, and for that matter slept with you till morning just to show my good feeling toward you. For my cabin is only a few mile away, and I can easily paddle down. But as you seem to be out of sorts and not overgiven the friendliness and a little uncertain in your morals as I conceit, I'm perfectly ready to go. But not in any hurry, young man. No, not in any hurry. You needn't look so sassy-like out of your eyes, for I've taken the measure of you, and though you be five to me one, yet I don't propose to go in any hurry. And as you have asked me a question, I'd like to ax it back to you again, and the question I'd like to ax is that when I say I don't intend to be in any hurry, if you have five chaps understand me, and the lines of the old man's face tightened a trifle, and the slightest of tremors ran through his tone. The answer that the man gave was what one would expect only from the most desperate of characters. The guns of the party were in the shanty, as were their pistols also. The only weapon about their persons was a large knife each carried. As the trapper closed his interrogation, the man to whom he especially addressed it dashed the knife that he had already drawn upon the ground and gave a spring toward the shanty. He gave one jump and stopped, for his quick eye told him that the muzzles of the trapper's rifle exactly covered his body, and that another jump would doubtly cost him his life. "'Your actions are not without reason,' said the trapper coolly, "'and you acted with judgment when you stopped where you was, "'for I saw shooting in your eye, "'and when it comes to shooting,' The quickest trigger gets the first shot. No, no, don't you move a step toward that shanty, but come back to the spot where you started and let me ask you a question. And don't you try any of your tricks on an old man on whose temper you just a little riled, for my finger is inside the guard and the lock works quick. So come back, stand where you was, and let me ask you a question. The man did as he was commanded. Indeed, there was nothing else for him to do, for his life lay at the mercy of the man who, without moving his rifle from the hollow of his arm, had nevertheless centered his body with the muzzle. The man returned to his place in the group by the fire. He was brave, that was beyond question, and his self-possession was perfect, for he picked the knife from the sod where he had cast it, and as he returned it to its sheath, he looked straight into the old man's eyes, and said in the coolest and calmest of tones, "'Take the pile, old man, you hold the tube ours.' And the laugh that he laughed showed his white teeth as he nodded at the muzzles of the double rifle. "'You have asked me to leave your camp,' said the old man after a moment's pause, during which he had looked the five men over from head to foot. "'You have asked me to leave your camp, and it's only reasonable that I should do as you want me to.' You have said some things to me that you oughtn't to have said, and you've been sort of loose and careless in your speech, but I certainly won't hold it again you if nothing further happens, for I wish to live in peace with you if you be possible, for I've seen enough of war. 
and a white head loves a peaceful pillow. Yes, I come in peace, and as there has been a little playfulness between us here, I would like to ax you if I go in peace. For a moment the five men looked at each other, and at length the man whose body the muzzle of a trapper's rifle still covered, and who had been the spokesman of the party thus far, said, Look here, old man, we are here for a purpose, and we are here under orders. What our purpose is is none of your business, and our orders are not to let a man come into this camp, and if a man gets in, not to let him go out alive. But you hold the bowers, and I, for one, surrender the pile. You go in peace, because we can't stop you. That's all there is about it. You come once, and you go once. But if you're wise, you won't try it again. Hoot, said the trapper. I've lived in these woods eighty year, off and on, and there never was a camp of white or redskin I didn't dare enter. And little there be in this camp that my eyes won't see afore a week passes, and few be the sounds that you make that my ears won't hear. And if you've got any secret that you don't want an honest man to know, and if you come on any divilment, you look to yourselves, for John Norton will find out your secret and fetch you up in your divilment. At the mention of the old man's name, the five started, and they whispered rapidly to each other, and it was evident that from whatever section of the world they had come, there the name that the old man spoke and the fame of it had penetrated. Are you John Norton the scout? asked the man who had done the talking for the group. Yes, I be John Norton, answered the old man, and I've did a good deal of scouting off and on in my life. But now the times be peaceful as they should be, I be nothing better than a trapper. And now, continued the old man, as it's getting a little late, and you say that my room is better than my company, I'm going to my boat. You don't look to me said the old man significantly as he ran his eye over the group. You don't look to me as if you've lived according to the Lord's appointment, and I can see that a little more life and a good deal more righteousness wouldn't hurt your chances at the judgment. And if you don't happen to be in any hurry about leaving the earth, I'd advise you to stand just where you be while I'm getting off from your camp, for the light you stand in is a strong un and the sights would show fine and the two of you that move first from the tracks where you stand, till you hear the call of a loon from the lake, will go to the judgment with a hole through your bodies that the Lord will know at a glance. For a good many vagabonds, as I judge you to be, have carried the size of my bullets into eternity afore now. So you just stand where you be until you hear the cry of a loon, unless you be in a hurry to die. So saying, the old man, with his head turned over the left shoulder, the barrel of his rifle resting on the hollow of his left arm, with both hammers cocked and his finger within the guard, strode down to his boat, entered it, and backed it out into the lake. The five men stood in their tracks. Suddenly they started, for out of the darkness came the call of a loon, strong and clear so that the echoes far up the mountain answered back the prolonged note through the gloom. "'Cleaned out,' said the spokesman of the party as he turned toward the shanty. "'I wonder what a captain'll say when he comes.'" End of chapter 1